yeah, it's not easy. Like always for startups, as I always say to my to to my friends who work more in the traditional space, you know, they say how things going. I said depends when you ask. In the morning, I can be shopping for for Lambos, and in the afternoon, I can be on LinkedIn <laughs> looking for jobs, and that night I can be shopping for Lambos again. Welcome to the next frontier. I'm Nicole Dunn, co-founder and COO at a venture-backed African startup. I'm a VC investor turned startup operator, passionate about unlocking untapped entrepreneurial potential in Africa. And I am Brian Carney, a three-time entrepreneur, nonprofit founder, and angel investor based in the US. I am excited about connecting capital to entrepreneurs solving the world's toughest problems. Join us as we change the narrative on startup investing in emerging markets and help bring the yearly African VC inflows to $20 billion. But right before we were recording, you said something about how it helps with impact investing. Is that part of why you wanted to, to co-found Empower and dive into it? Yeah, so look, I think a big, you know, as I mentioned off air, I grew up in South Africa. Um, Glenn, our co-founder, originally grew up in Zimbabwe, then moved to South Africa. Now I was also living in the Netherlands. And I think one of the challenges we observed across the continent was you know a lack of access to affordable funding preventing people from reaching their full potential um, and we kind of saw that you know there's many examples of that prior to moving to the netherlands and enjoying and joining empower i was running a business that financed did interest student loans in south africa um, so you know it was always really drawn to how can we make impact in a way that is sustainable so we think about sustainability not only in terms of climate, because that's obviously a big mm-hmm. narrative for the homes that we finance, but also sustainable as a business model, you know, simply relying on donations has been proven to not be effective. So mm-hmm. Empower Business is designed to be sustainable. I mean, that financially sustainable. And so that requires us to design a model that allows people to get access to affordable housing in a way that, especially once the flywheel gets going and we have more and more homes within the fund, allows more and more people to be impacted. So yeah, that's a big part of who we're trying to attract from a community's perspective, but also trying to attract from a kind of financier's perspective and the kinds of conversations we have. Interesting. And then with that model, what uh, what about DeFi makes that model work the most? Or, or what made you dive into DeFi rather than just TradFi? Yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, last bull market, Everyone was a blockchain business. Everyone was a blockchain <laughs> technology. And you kind of start to scratch the surface and say, well, why and why can't you do this in a more traditional way? Conversation get a, a little bit dicey. We're not a blockchain business. We finance affordable housing. When we started to look at how we could do that in an effective way and look at different technology options, blockchain technology stood out as the way we were going to be able to resolve this problem. In the same way that Amazon's not an internet business, they're a retailer. They just happen to leverage the internet to deliver a superior product. So Jeff Bezos ran around going, I'm an internet business. He went, I sell books online. I sell books, but I do it online. So the reason why we lent into the blockchain aspect of, of delivering this product is kind of multifaceted. So when you look at the challenge around financing, housing in kind of developing markets, you typically run into a few key challenges. So the first one is a lack of transparency 
and the perception around corruption, et cetera. So where do my funds go and how are they deployed? Well, as a start, blockchain really helps with that because we can record our payments on, block, on the chain. We can demonstrate that to any would-be financiers and they can say with confidence, all right, that's where the money is, that's where it's flowed, that's how it's been deployed, that's really valuable. Not only can we do that, but we can do that in kind of near real time. So rather than having to send an auditor out at an exorbitant cost months into the future and say, okay, how have things been performing? We can really get this feedback, like I said, in near real time. So that's obviously incredibly valuable. We can move funds very quickly. So to give you an example, in our pilot project in Mozambique, we sent some funds in for the homes and we had those funds in our developer's bank account using peer-to-peer because -peer, there's no exchanges in Mozambique in three days. A, a separate partner sent a similar amount of money through the traditional banking sector and those funds were held in the reserve bank for six months. Oh, geez. So you can imagine trying to run a business where your funds that you've raised successfully, you know, haven't been released for six months. And then, and then the final one, and this is probably the most critical, is when trying to raise funding in all of the TradFi space, the traditional space, for a project like affordable housing in, say, Bayer Mozambique, the sad reality is that financiers who maybe are based, say, in Europe, say, let's say in Switzerland, look at that as almost akin to an unsecured loan. You know, for them to go ahead and raise the funds and have these homes, you know, now they have our homes are $10,000 a home in Mozambique. For them to go and liquidate that asset if they needed to, or even a portion of that asset, is going to cost them more than the asset's worth. Business class flights in Mozambique, pay for their consultants, yeah. et cetera, not to mention how challenging it would be to liquidate those assets because there isn't a functioning housing market. So we have that challenge that because there's such a perceived high risk of that investment, the reward needs to be commensurative. And that's why home loans cost 25% in Mozambique, right? Crazy, right? No one could yeah. afford a home loan at 25%. Um, you're based right. in the States, I think they're up to like seven and a half, eight percent People are complaining, yeah. quadruple that and see how you feel. So huh. what we do is collateralize a portion of that loan using our token, which is locked up by the developer or the developer and in part by our community. And that gives the financier a highly liquid asset that in the event of default or massive currency fluctuations, they can sit in the air-conditioned office or heated office, click a few buttons and have recouped some of their investment. So that immediately collateralizes the loan with a highly liquid asset, which reduces perceived risk, which reduces the expected return. And that return can then be passed on to our tenants who ultimately you know, go on to purchase their home. So, that's kind of, I ran through quite quickly, but probably the four ways in which blockchain helps, but also the way in which DeFi helps. So we can crowd an investment from impact investors, from DFIs, from NGOs, from you know, family offices, whoever think, whoever's you know, drawn to our mission. We can provide them a return. We can give them you know, a collateral that is liquid, and we can allow our community to support the project in a way that also rewards them for that support and allows them to make a positive impact. Yeah. Huh. What about affordable housing made it the industry that you dove into? Was there 
research into it? Was there just this one moment where you're like, oh crap, I have to fix this? Like what, what, yeah. uh, what was that? Absolutely. So look, it's, it's interesting, you know, Glenn came to, from, to it from one perspective, I came to it from another. So, you know, Glenn having grown up in Zimbabwe and seen all that has happened in that country, left Zimbabwe, landed up in South Africa, and in South Africa, tons of Zimbabweans, I think about 2 million, came across the border uh, during the kind of, as well, economic um, migrants or economic refugees. But when they got to South Africa, they weren't able to open bank accounts. Now, Glenn started to try and tackle that challenge and it was approached by actually a Dutch pension fund to see how they could launch pensions for these Zimbabwean, I suppose, refugees in South Africa. As he started to try and solve that problem, he realized that actually one of the biggest assets you can have as somebody of a lower income is your home, right? You've got a house over your head, massive hierarchy of needs. That's, that's a challenge that really needs to be addressed. And one that has been so poorly addressed across the continent. And I'll get to that in a second. So, you know, he realized, before we can even have a pension, we need to have some, give someone a place to live. I had, like I said, been working on a challenge around providing affordable or interest-free student loans. Um, we were trying to tackle a segment of the market in South Africa where the interest rate on the interest loan on a student loan could be as much as 27%. So again, you know, if you're challenging, if you think of some challenges around student loans in, in the States, um, at about 4 or 5%, I think they said, 27% is just exorbitant. So we were trying to tackle that problem. When I got into contact with Glenn and was considering my move to the Netherlands, um, I realized, again, housing is even supposed further down in the Maslow hierarchy of needs. So it would be a really interesting problem to try and solve. And so that was it from a kind of impact perspective. From an opportunity perspective, it's just a fundamentally broken system across the continent waiting to be disrupted. Again, just considering Mozambique for a second, our pilot market, our pilot market. Mozambique has almost 31 million people. And across the country, there's only 600 home loans. Not 600 a month, not 600 a year, not 600,000, 600 active home loans in Mozambique. Now, as poor as Mozambique is, and it is one of the poorest countries, one can't believe that there's only 600 people who are able to qualify for a home loan. It's just it's not how, it just doesn't make any sense. So there's clearly an untapped market and ratios like that exist Across the, across the continent. Nigeria, again, another market that we're actively exploring. The ratio is the same. There's obviously more home loans because Nigeria is a much bigger country, but still the ratio is the same. And so that all stems from the fact that the traditional mortgage, as we understand it, is not fit for purpose across the continent. So 80% of income across the African continent is informal, right? Many countries don't have a functioning credit system. People don't get a payslip as we think about it. You know, their, their income is very lumpy. You know, the, around tourism season or around harvest season, you can see big spikes in income and then big troughs. So to expect somebody to sign a contract and to say, I'm going to pay this set amount every month for the next 30 years isn't really realistic. So we offer what we call a rent-to-own, more of an industry term, a rent-to-own contract, where the tenant will pay a set amount each month as in the form of rental, but ad hoc can contribute to their home loan as and when they have additional income. And over a period of 10 years, they're expected to pay back that home. So there's a bunch of legal and kind of regulatory advantages to that structure, but it also means it's forward looking. So as long as you can keep making your rental payment and then make your ad hoc 
equity payments, you can live in the home, you can enjoy the benefits of living in that home. So, you know, it is akin, I suppose, to a home loan or mortgage. And for people who historically would have had to save up in cash, 100% in cash to buy the homes, or would have had to self-build, this is a much better alternative where they get a home that is climate resilient, so it's built to withstand natural disasters, which are all too common across the continent. They you know, have running water, they have ablution facilities, they have electricity. These are all things that aren't kind of a given if you have to self-build a home, if you live in kind of what is often unfortunately inferior accommodation. That brings up a lot of questions. One I had when you were talking about the last part, and I have a couple more about the the actual market, the credit system, all of that. But for these homes, do you have building partners that are that are building these homes? Are you guys building the homes? How does that look? Yeah. So absolutely, we this is a grassroots project. We believe with partnering locally. I think a, for a number of reasons. First and foremost getting all the regulatory approval, building up teams, all of that additional mm-hmm. cost to be in each market just wouldn't make any sense. So for that reason, we partner locally. It also, housing is a local issue, right? People need to understand what locally makes sense in terms of construction, design, right. um, you know, managing these leads to own contracts. You know, you have somebody on the ground who needs to check, follow up, maintenance, all, all the things that come with it. So very hard to sit here in Amsterdam and try and manage a Mozambique housing development. So we do partner mm-hmm. with lo- locally. Um, and we also think that also empowers, as the name suggests, empowers local developers to help solve their own problem. Again, I think we've, we all, anyone in the industry can tell you countless examples of well-meaning European-based or American-based projects that have thought they'll fly in, create a solution and, and solve what is a backlog of 50 million homes across the African continent. It's not going to be done remote. It's going to have to be done with local partners. So yeah, we're focused really on helping on the financing side, based here closer to where the capital is so in, in Europe. Our teams kind of spread across Europe and some in America, but mostly in Europe, raising the funds and then working with partners on the ground to do the delivery. That makes sense. Then the partners on the ground, that that has to be a pretty key, pretty key part because each country is going to have a very different regulatory environment. They're going to have different legal environments. Um, what what does that look like, particularly with the view on like land rights? Is that a difficult thing to manage when you're going into new markets? What does that look like? Absolutely. So look, every market has its own regulatory challenges. The one thing we have at our advantage is... Housing, from a political standpoint, is a, affordable housing, I should say. Affordable housing, from a political standpoint, is very popular. No politician ever didn't get re-elected by providing more <laughs> affordable housing. So when we come and we say, look, we're going to bring foreign investment, we're going to work with local partners, we're going to allow you to have more affordable homes. In general, politicians are quite excited to see what we're doing. A good example of that would be End of last year, we signed an agreement to deliver 25,000 homes in Barrie and Mozambique. It's a 10 to 15 year project, and that's a very big undertaking. But, you know, the mayor of Mozambique flew out here to do the signing. He went to get all these photos. He's been to the site multiple times. It's part of his campaign ambitions. So that helps a lot. That doesn't solve all problems, but it's very different to 
um, some of the other challenges that blockchain projects can have when they're trying to move into a new market, especially when they're trying to stabilize things like local currency, et cetera. So that helps a lot. In terms of that relationship, you know, right now we're very selective on who we work with. So we'd rather go slow, choose the right partners, have a track record of delivery. The long-term ambition with Empower is ultimately to create kind of an ecosystem where developers and financiers and everyone kind of be connected through what we're doing. That would be called, call it the decentralized approach ultimately. But right now it does unfortunately have to be quite centralized i.e. us choosing the partner, working with them closely, because any failings at this stage are much more dire. You know, if we had 10,000 developers raising funding in countries across the globe and one or two or three or four were unsuccessful, that's expected, right? And right now, if we have one successful and one that's unsuccessful, well, that would probably significantly hamper our ability to continue. Right. So what do you do to kind of analyze the credit risk if there is no credit system in the markets you're going to? So look, you know, we try and gain as much information as we can. And ideally, we prefer to work to kind of extend rent-to-earn contracts to tenants who at least can cover that minimum rental payment from their formal income. Because typically, like I said, it's some form or some informal income, ideally. We also, you know, have the advantage that we tend to have really long waiting lists for potential clients, you know, so a good example, just to illustrate that point, when we launched our first set of homes in Mozambique, Casarel, our local partner, printed 50 application forms. They received 150 application forms back, which means that people went out and photocopied themselves and had people apply. So we have a waiting list to the waiting list. So because it's rent to own, a tenant that's not performing can be removed and a new tenant can be moved in. It's not like a mortgage where there's a change in title deed, et cetera. So there's that element. So we can choose the right people to move in. We also have our own application called PowerPay, which is how we manage tenants' payments. We're increasingly creating more integrations to allow tenants to pay through that application. And what that does is it allows us to keep track of how payments are performing, like I said, kind of closer to real time, so we can flag any potential issues. So is there somebody who isn't paying? We can identify that. How do we deal with it through our partner? But we're not waiting for, again, some audited financials at the end of the year. So that that's obviously quite key. And I suppose the longer-term ambition would be to have that record of payment connected to a digital identity and some kind of anonymized record that could almost act as the credit score. You know, if we were in a position where we could showcase that tenant A had made successful payments of their rent for the last three years, was up on their equity payments, et cetera, you could imagine another organization being interested in being able to query that and maybe even pay something for that in order to be able to decide whether they extend a cell phone contract or a car, car contract. Um, and again, then those funds can be used to kind of lower the cost of yeah, home ownership. Okay, that, that makes sense. And then when you're on the fundraising side, how do you show the market and explain the potential return for investors? Because when they are thinking a $10,000 mortgage in Mozambique, the average investor is probably thinking, I'm never going to see my money back. 
but that's obviously not the point of a business. How do you explain that to them? Absolutely. So look, we really have the full spectrum of finances that we talk to. On the one hand, we have kind of your hard-nosed, finance-focused, what's my return, risk <laughs> uh-huh. and relevant return. Oh, it's doing something positive. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's not a bad yeah. thing, but that yeah. doesn't move the needle. Then we have all the other side, you know, the real kind of NGO, a philanthropic organization who's very driven by impact. And throughout, we kind of everything sits somewhere in the middle. We tend to place, right now especially, the, the audience that is most interested in what we're doing is sitting somewhere kind of on the philanthropic, but not completely, we're not a charity, we're not, we don't do donations, but you know, they measure results, they've been mandated and they measure results based on what's the return What's the sustainability of that return, but also what's the impact that's being made? So, you know, being able to demonstrate that our homes are over 50% women-led households, you know, the climate initiatives, et cetera, that's, that's typically as important as the return. So when we offer something akin to a 10% return for our investors, but we can also show these impact metrics, that ticks a lot of boxes for them. Yeah. I, you know, ideally we would want our business to be, you know, in a position where it's so sustainable that even that hard-nosed investor can't, can't deny yeah. the returns. But that's not 100% who the audience we're playing to at this stage. We're definitely not a charity. We're definitely not looking for donations. and it's not, We're not really in that space. But there's plenty of organizations who've been mandated, either because they're government organizations, um, maybe they're pension funds, whatever, to hit that kind of ECG metric and, and make sure that they're showing sustainable returns. In which case, I think we are an interesting prospect for the for that audience for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then what? Oh, and and sorry, sorry. The final thing I'll say is, in terms of how do we demonstrate that you'll get your money back? We know we've done a pilot project in Mozambique. Admittedly, it's at this stage it's thirty five homes, and we're scaling that up. But you know, we're able to demonstrate to that audience not only have those people been successfully paying back, paying their monthly rent, which they have, but some of them are. You know, I think after three months. Five percent of the equity had already been paid back. I think we're a bit higher. We have some who are almost halfway through paying their homes back already in, in like a year or uh, fifteen months. So we're able to showcase that there are there is a market for this, and I, I do think it's important to point out Empower doesn't house the homeless. So I just you know that's sometimes a misconception. We typically provide funding to working the working poor or urban poor. So it will be nurses, policemen, teachers, civil servants. Typically, in other places in the world, these individuals would at least have a home with money and water and toilets and electricity and et cetera. But in many other countries we speak, we're, we're marketing, we're working in, they don't. So, you know, and, and that, you know, that's a segment of the audience that also needs to be addressed. So when you start to understand that it is a nurse, it's a teacher, that they're making these payments based on this income that they earn, that they've been able to make ad hoc payments. And this, you know, we can showcase that, that research, you know, skepticism, be able to address some of the skepticism. Obviously, there's always going to be some people who, you know, think the risk isn't worth the return, but if they want to make an impact in those kinds of people's lives, then yeah, a good project. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And no matter what, the... Uh startup is there's people who aren't going to think the risk is worth the return so oh, that, of course that makes sense of course 
I mean, everyone's heard those fun stories of investors who go, who's going to, who's going to let somebody stay in their spare bedroom? <laughs> for, or who's going to let somebody stay in their apartment? Or, right. apartment? or who's going to, which random individual is going to give somebody else a lift in their car? Like that's, ne- oh, that's never going to work. And yeah. those are the investors in Masada, Uber and Airbnb. So, you know. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly true. And that provides a, a fantastic transition to a few questions I had about your background. So I have, I have more questions about Impala. When I was doing a little bit of research, it looked like you used to play in the Airbnb world a little bit. Um, tell me about that. <laughs> uh, some, that's some, some good stalking. So yeah, I uh, joined, straight out of university, I joined as an intern at a digital marketing agency company called Quirk, which went on to be Africa's largest digital marketing agency. And kind of rode the wave from being into an all the way to being on the executive. Sadly, I joined just too late to have gotten any of the equity stake. So I uh, didn't really didn't really monetize all, all that uh-huh. time, but I definitely learned a lot of lessons. I think once the founding team who had obviously formed a close relationship had had their earn out and moved on, I decided, okay, probably had some good education work with somebody else. I could learn some good lessons. All my friends have left the party. Maybe it's time for me to go off on my own. So um, I joined a business and managed Airbnb properties. Well, yeah, kind of, it was a really random, but I went on to join as the team. I just kind of joined in a senior role and take a stake in that business. We managed at our peak like 100, over 100 listings across Cape Town, which was, yeah, I'll be honest and say not a business that ultimately I really enjoyed. It's, um, <laughs> you know, you... Yeah. When people are on holiday, I think they sometimes, they, you know, come with a very set intention for, for their two weeks that they have their time off and can be a bit of a challenge. And when you have a lot of listings, there's always something going wrong, right? There's always a geezer that's burst. There's always, you know, something that's happened and you're basically constantly putting out fires. And even if you have 99 happy apartments, you just need one to kind of, to mess up your day. So yeah. Land up, land up, leaving that business, uh, bouncing around, doing a lot of bit of consulting, mostly, and then yeah, I suppose joined up with the founder of Quirk, uh, who had sold and made a lot of money to do learning loans. So he had decided to um, refocus his efforts post his acquisition of Quirk into impact focused projects, which is how learning loans came into existence. We worked on that for a long time, had some good success there. I think at our peak, we had, we, just before COVID, we had about 30 institutions, um, colleges, universities using our service. And then when COVID hit, like I suppose many businesses, a lot of those organizations closed down or didn't close down, but closed their doors. And it was unclear when they were going to open again. Distance learning in South Africa is not as realistic. You know, people, data is really expensive, having kind of, the hardware to enable it is more challenging. So that was a moment where I needed to, you know, like for many people, they reflected. I'd lived in South Africa my whole life and I was deciding whether I wanted to maybe experience what it'd be like living abroad. And that's when I got connected with Glenn, who at the time was just writing the, had just written the white paper for Empower and said, well, you know, I'll do some other stuff and kind of, while we work on this, but let's see if we can raise some funding to make this reality, which took a bit of time, um, but we were able to finally raise some funding, have the kind of runway we needed to deliver this thing properly. And so that's when I focused my time full-time on Empower, based here in the Netherlands. And 
I suppose that's been the last two two years. I don't know. It's all all a bit of a blur. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah. it was a an idea born out of COVID, right? And ironically, those were some of the best years for blockchain, right? I mean, we were all stuck at home with nowhere to spend our money. Now <laughs> we are now we are. Do I buy more of this random token or do I, you know, go on holiday to right. Greece? I'm going to go on holiday to Greece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I have a couple more questions about your background, but first I want to know a little bit about the challenges of fundraising. Because um, when you just spoke, you kind of made it sound like, oh, you know, we just eh, decided we we're going to fundraise. But I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. And it's it's not an easy thing, particularly if you're fundraising in Europe for something in Africa where, again, a lot of the investors you're talking to might have absolutely zero experience with the entire continent. They might have never been. The only things they might hear are the you know bad news stories, which give you a, a horrible view of it. It's the same as here in the States. Everyone thinks Chicago is just this 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 murder capital of the world and it's it's really not that bad you just no. only hear the bad stuff <laughs> so of course. it's a similar thing of course so look maybe a bit around the fundraising you we built our project our project right now has been built on cardano um which we were drawn to because of its focus in that space and impact and also within africa at the time that we were deciding what layer one to choose low fees were very important and they had quite a keen focus on Africa with a organization set up in Kenya and kind of a CEO focus on that uh, aspect of their project. So you see, started off uh, with Cardano and they have a thing called Project Catalyst, which is a community-led fundraiser where they can allocate funds. And we were very fortunate to have secured $60,000 in Fund 5, which we used to deliver four homes as a kind of pilot homes to show we could actually deliver homes with a partner and to finance the NFT sale, which we saw there was a thousand NFTs, which I think raised about $400,000, if I'm not mistaken, a few years back now. And those were just NFTs that were that promised future potential in the project. Right? So we, there'd be a founding community and it was really the peak, I suppose, of NFT seasons that helped us a lot. Um, yeah. And finally, we did a token sale. So we were able to do a token sale, which... I think the final week of our token sale, Russia invaded Ukraine and all our metrics went okay. <laughs> down. <Right. laughs> yeah. um, everything, uh, everything didn't look as rosy as it did the week before, but we were quite fortunate. We had quite a successful first few weeks, so we were close to sell, sold out. Oh, we also did an ISPO, which is also a Cardano, I think primarily a Cardano initiative where people, you run a stake pool, people stake their ADA, so hmm. stake the Cardano native token. Mm-hmm you get the rewards that they would ordinarily get for run, helping run a validator, but instead you give them your token. So it's a trade. Um, so if you've got to hold on to their capital ADA, give the interest effectively, the way I used to describe it to my non-crypto friends is put their dollars in your bank account, you get the interest and you give them your token in, in, in lieu. So those four things helped us to raise enough funding to give us sufficient runway to deliver the first 35 homes, to build a lot of the infrastructure, to build the blockchain, etc. Blockchain kind of gaps that we needed. Right now, we're obviously in a position where we're trying to raise funding, and we're always trying to raise funding for more homes, right? And that's just the virtue of our, of our project. That's obviously become more challenging because, you know, in general, sentiment is not where it was 18 months to two years ago. 
what's the the positives of that are we talk to much larger organizations because we have a bit of a track record. So when we get a yes, that yes is a bigger check. The challenge is because you know, times are tough, people you know, are more kind of skittish about signing that, that check. And what we're experiencing right now, and as I say to the team often, is we're in this position where we have a lot of dominoes around people who are interested in supporting our project, but nobody wants to go first, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> almost always the case with startups. Like, yeah. you, know, you, you often hear these stories where you know, managers are flowing as soon as you've got the right person on board. We're lucky we've had some good partners. Mercy Core Ventures is a VC that's very focused in the space, who's put some money in, and we've just finished the kind of, there was a grant, and we just finished that period, and we're getting a review done, and I think based on how that review goes, it will help um, with future, with kind of unlocking knocking that first domino and hopefully setting things off. But yeah, I mean, right now, we've kind of just come out of the European summer, which Europeans are very good at work-life balance. So things mm-hmm. do definitely quieten down over August. Um, but yeah. we expect now for the final quarter to convert a lot of these kind of, yes, I'm interested to, yes, here's a check. Yeah, it's not easy. Like always for startups, as I always say to my, to, to my friends who work more in the traditional space, you know, they say, how things going? I said, depends when you ask. In the morning, I can be shopping for, for Lambos and in the afternoon, I can be on LinkedIn <laughs> looking for jobs. And that night, I can be shopping for Lambos again. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, but that's, that's a journey. I mean, I've done it a few times now, I'm, I'm successfully and unsuccessfully. So it's, you know, you get a bit hardened. And you maybe you don't yeah. get to invest in the Lambo that you spec out on the website. And you also <laughs> don't click submit on the CV application on LinkedIn yet. You just kind of like hover in the middle right. until, you know. <laughs> right. You're polishing your resume. You're not sending it out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you're not like, your, your hearts are broken when the kind of orange Lambo with yellow stitching isn't actually <laughs> going to be yours. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And then, so are you thinking that the next rounds are all going to be venture funding or you do you envision another ICO down the road, maybe when the market improves on the crypto side? So I think two things. I mean, first of all, I think the kinds of funds we want to raise in order to really start making impact is probably more likely to come from an institutional back investor. So I think that's the first one. I think the regulatory framework globally is much clearer when it comes to institutions. You know, in general, governments are kind of like if you're big enough, you're big enough you know, to do what you want with your money. Whether you agree with that or not, I'm not going to get into to right. that politics, but that's generally the consensus. Right. We've also, the community has really been generous in giving us the funds that we need to have gone to this point and to give us the runway that we have. And, you know, we prefer to really start to show meaningful delivery before we went back and asked them for more money. So, you know, I think that's unlikely that we would go back to community fundraising unless, you know, we were in a position where we had delivered so much, you know, and was so, you know, and regulatory environments had changed and everything that we felt like, cool, we can, you know, give people a chance to continue to get, to get more involved. But the, we have a little bit left, as I mentioned earlier in, in the interview of our, funds that we've allocated, our tokens that we've allocated to community, to kind of community funds, we do need to distribute those at some point. So yeah, we might, just to 
just to be that last little bit, maybe we'll do something. But like I said, it's quite a small percentage of what we're looking to sell. It's just that it was in our white paper, it was in our tokenomics, and therefore it seems reasonable that any person who participated in our project would want to see those funds out of the team's hands, hypothetically. Right, you know, in the right. same way that you want to see you know, all our funds, all our tokens have been separated into their own wallets with named wallets, obviously can be tracked, so people can keep quite a good eye on where our funds go, but just for completeness sake. We said we're going to distribute this yeah. much. Let's make sure that it's going to community's hands. And we also, when we did our token sell, capped um, the amount of tokens we could sell. So, wow, we're, we're now, this feels like decades ago in crypto time, but I think it was like the most was four and a half thousand dollars worth you could buy. I think the least okay. was two and a half dollars, something like that, or maybe even less, I can't recall. Or, or maybe it was less than that. We had four and a half thousand token holders at the end of our sale. So we really tried to distribute our token and limit the number of whales that existed, yeah. so, which I think we did a good job of. Um, so we'd also want to make sure that those tokens go out in a more evenly distributed way. So again, yeah. you know, we don't have anyone pumping and dumping our token because we're not that kind of project, right? Property yeah. is typically a long-term prospect. So Yeah, that makes sense. When, uh, when you do that next token sale, you're going to have to let me know. I'll be interested for sure. Thank you. Thank you. No, definitely appreciate the support. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a cool project. Okay, so on your background, growing up, did you think that you were going to be going into startups, or is this kind of out of left field to use a U.S. baseball analogy? Yeah, yeah no, of course we know we know. Uh, I kind of know my American sports, so <laughs> not completely out of left field. My dad was a bit of a serial entrepreneur, admittedly both successful and unsuccessful, as is always the case. But I kind of grew up, and my mom actually runs her own business as well. So kind of grew up in a family where people were quite entrepreneurial, they kind of worked for themselves, kind of had to ride the the trials and tribulations of that. But, you know, it never was never, uh, you know, I work a nine to five and I get my paycheck at the end of the month. So um, I think maybe through osmosis or, you know, that's just kind of what I was drawn to. I know it's not for everyone, but I think, yeah, I think it wasn't unexpected. And as we all know, as anyone who is entrepreneurial and has run their own business, they know there's pros and of course there's cons. There's a sense of the few times that I have worked with somebody else, one can't deny that knowing that your next paycheck is likely going to come in on the 25th, very likely to come in on the 25th. And you don't need to worry about it. And, you know, there's, you know, you're only doing one job and you just need to do that job really well is, obviously a luxury that you forgo when you do your own business. But at least for me personally, the advantages and the challenges and especially the kind of stimulation that you get from being your own boss and running your own business far outweighs that that sense of comfort. So yeah, yeah. Very happy being in, in the power team. It's nice to have colleagues. I've also done startups where I've just been by myself, maybe just a couple of us. And this that can get quite lonely, especially in the world of I suppose remote work and shouldn't be even worse. So it's nice to have a team and we do get to meet up kind of weekly or fortnightly all together here in Amsterdam, the ones that are based here. So yeah, not completely out of left field, but, uh, and I've tried both. And I think I'll be sticking in the entrepreneurial route. I don't envisage having to look for another job. Things that empower going according to plan. If that were to be the case, then probably another startup for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It can become addicting for sure. The startup world, sure. like you said, might not have the stability, but the camaraderie you have in building something is kind of second to none, I think. Yeah. And I mean, that stability, you know, also as I've sadly witnessed so many friends kind of go through the trials and tribulations of retrenchments, which is very common in South Africa, unfortunately, and, you know, it's common everywhere. I do sometimes question how much stability, whether that sense of stability is sometimes a bit of a false sense of security. You know, at least I know what our bank account looks like. I know how much runway we've got. I know what needs to get done right. to raise money and, you yeah. but how many, how many people, you know, get to work on a Monday, scan their badge and get a weird error message and then check their personal emails and, you know, are told that they've been like, they never knew it was going to happen. And it might even be a company that's performing well, i.e. is profitable, but not well enough for shareholders. So, yeah, I think that's also something that I think over time I've started to realize you don't delude yourself sometimes if you're working for somebody else that you're more, that your financial security is more so than if you're working for yourself. I mean, obviously not everyone has luxury, not everyone has the idea needed to run with, but uh, I also, me personally, I think I'm more of an executor than an ideator. So... It's so harder for me to sit there and go, well, what's a great business idea? But if I connect with somebody who's got a good idea, I'm good again from zero to one. But yeah, it's a few of my, a few, far too many of my friends have, you know, thought that they were sitting pretty in there. I mean, I'll give you a crazy example. Over COVID, I only had one friend lose their job over COVID, and he was exceptionally, exceptionally senior at Uber in South Africa. And like, if oh, you had wow. said to me going into COVID, who would be the friend that you knew who was least who was like the least likely to lose their job because of COVID? You know, yeah. it, you think almost instrumental, but you know, they decided to consolidate, move their offices to another location, consolidate two offices, and maybe the office done. He could have been relocated but didn't want to, but yeah, I can get into all the details. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's true. And then I also found in my uh my background research that you've done a little bit of lecturing as well. Talk about that. I feel like I went on hot ones, you know, I don't know if you ever watched it. Like, yeah, uh, really going, you know, but be careful if you put a LinkedIn. No, so look, lecturing, as maybe this interview is a testament to, I'm not shy to for a long answer to a short question. So mm -hmm. lecturing gives you a, an audience that can't go anywhere, but I do really enjoy it. It's a, it's a nice way, I think, in some cases to give back or also just to be challenged. I've done some lecturing also kind of to in, as part of programs where it's maybe less affluent students, which is uh, also very rewarding. So, yeah, it's always, if it can be called a side hustle, it's always been a bit of a side hustle, but I've enjoyed it, um, especially when I was doing my digital marketing stuff. And, yeah, I uh, don't do it right now. It's, I'm not in a position... Empower is very, very, very time consuming. So I don't yeah. think it would be fair either to empower in our community who's entrusted us with a lot of, with their funds to make it a success. And then we fair to our, our the students, you know, who demand a lot from a lecturer. But I hope that with time and stability and hopefully a slightly bigger team, I can look at doing something like that again. And I don't think I'm smart enough on blockchain yet, but if you stay in the industry and if you survive this bear market, <laughs> Yes. Then if you survive this bear market, then I think you've earned the right to tell all the newbies who come in the next bull market <laughs> a thing right. or two. So. 
yeah, that's at that's least for some sure. of our motivation. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, the people who are throwing all of their savings into uh, the most recent altcoin, not quite as common now as it probably will be in 18, 24 months. So it'll be interesting yeah, to see. Absolutely. I think uh, people who've bought during this bear market, I, I, I can you know, I can see having coming back. I was kind of interested in blockchain through one of the bull markets yeah. and then, you know, land up getting involved in other kinds of startups and my interest waned because I didn't have the time. And then, you know, obviously got back into Empower during the last bull market and speaking to some people who have been in the industry much longer and kind of been through the cycle, there's definitely a, a wisdom that was unappreciated. Uh, and I definitely don't profess to develop that wisdom myself, but I can see uh, when you've seen the cycles and you've seen the people come and, you know, the number of people who apply to work at Empower during the bull market. Oh, you can see this all the time. I care so much about your mission, so much. I really want to th thank you so much. Now, our mission hasn't changed. If anything, right. we're closer to delivering on what we wanted. Yeah. But the blockchain part isn't as sexy as it once was, uh, you know? So. <laughs> you need to have an AI AI thing in there somehow, and you'll probably get those resume CVs back up. <laughs> yeah, it probably would help with our fundraising as well, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> our our credit funny. scores will be generated by AI. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Well, we have one last question that we're asking okay. every guest. I'm really intrigued to hear what yours is going to be. But it is what is one or maybe two, if you want, contrarian views that you have that most people will not agree with you? That's interesting. I'll give you one that is that is this ongoing discussion that I have with the team is not the one that you're looking for. So my most contrarian view is that strawberries are the most overrated fruit in the world and pears are the most underrated fruit. So that's interesting. Okay, uh, dive into that. That, that, that. You know, I think everyone's like, oh, strawberries, they're so delicious. Oh, they're so romantic. Oh, whatever. But they're actually normally quite average. And pears, super versatile, but everyone wants to call them like an apple. So pears, underrated, strawberries, <laughs> overrated. So that's quite contrarian. I assume it's probably not the answer that you wanted. Oh, that's a, that's a great answer. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> that from my perspective, what, what I think is... I think that working in, this is not maybe necessarily contrarian, but I always find it amazing working in the industry of blockchain, how we are in a bear market. You know, everybody is like blockchain, it's quiet, it's dead, it's not going. But every day you look and there's new partnerships, there's new big organizations trying things, there's ETS being applied for, there's MasterCard doing stuff. There's, people say, oh, the bull market will come around in the next 18, 24 months. And I don't necessarily know if I disagree with that because I'd like to plan for the worst, hope for the best. So I'd like to plan it's going to take us 24 months to get there and it'd be sooner. But I, like, I find it very hard to believe it will take that long with how much is happening bubbling under the surface. So not financial advice for anyone who's listening. If anyone wants to think that they must now go buy an old coin or whatever, do not do, do, not do that based <laughs> on what I've said. But what I, what I will say is I think we're much closer to maybe not mass adoption, but large scale adoption, then people are giving credit for. And I think it's fine to work for an 18, 24 month timeline, Harvins, ETFs, all that stuff. But if you're feeling disillusioned, you know, go look in the parts of Twitter that aren't about pump and dump and go look at actually even, actually go look at the news, right? And 
the industry news, not mainstream news, political industry news, you can see, huh, why is PayPal's doing something, MasterCard's doing something, Visa's doing something, and banks in Europe are going to be able to hold 2%, I think it was, of their profile in blockchain in, in 2025, and started connecting, they go like, well, hold on, these people are not investing all the money that it took to get into that place if they thought it was dead. And they're not necessarily also doing it for an 18 to 24 month payback, although it may still take that long. So maybe less, not so contrarian, maybe just a piece of insight, but definitely the strawberries being overrated. Sit down, think about it, and you'll realize, unless you dip them in chocolate, what are they even doing? <laughs> That's fair. Hard to beat chocolate covered strawberries, but pears are, are grow really well around me, so I tend to agree. I also very much agree with the crypto mining rig. For people listening, I'm actually turning my camera, but I have my rig I'm building over here. I very much agree that I say 18 to 24 months for the same reason. I'm like, eh, you know, if it takes 18 to 24 months, I'll be okay. But I tend to agree. I think particularly the ETFs that are coming out are very interesting. And four months ago, no one would have thought they'd be as close as they are to, to being approved. No one. And they... I think it's like 75% odds that Wall Street is putting on them being approved now. That's that's pretty pretty crazy. And I think I think the other thing maybe that I'll say maybe just make us run the time, but I'll, I'll try that real quickly is that obviously this America is a big driver of everything financial. But if you again maybe mean based you get a, a perspective of say Europe, Europe, even maybe a bit of Asia, and obviously with our folks in Africa we get quite a bit of Africa. Yeah, I mean, the rest of the world's not really waiting. So I think that's that's obviously bullish. And again, if you've many people raise the question of, well, why do I need blockchain? And I've been living in the Netherlands now for almost three years. And it still blows my mind when I click pay and the money just clears immediately here in Europe, right? Like, and maybe that's a given in the States as well. And you have a lot of apps that can do that. But if I want to transfer money, in South Africa, sometimes it can take two to three days between my own bank accounts. And that's not, you know, talking about remittance payments and getting money in and out of countries and, reg- and currency regulations. And so all of these things just go to show that there's a big part of the world where this technology actually is game changer. And it's not an incremental improvement, it's a massive improvement. But I think once it picks up across the continent, I think that's going to be really impactful. I mean, Kenya's had M-Pesa, which I think about 70% of their GDP goes through for decades now. I mean, I was in Nairobi for work over a decade ago and everything was M-Pesa. It's been like that for a long time. So there is a ready adoption of something like a digital currency. So I think when you start to realize that, yeah, there's a lot of use cases elsewhere, it's really interesting. And you start to say, okay, maybe it'll be slower in the States because it's not as needed. Maybe it'll be slow in Europe, not as needed. But in parts of the world where it is, I think it will be pretty impactful pretty quickly. And the final event, in fact, I'll give you is in Mozambique, I think USDT can at times have a 5% premium. People will pay an additional, will pay the equivalent of $1.05 for $1 of USDT because they just see the value of an unregulated, easily movable version of the dollar. And it's crazy. I mean, who would ever pay a premium on a stable coin? Or when you start to see that there's real utility to a blockchain-based stablecoin, then for some people, then yeah, you'll pay a premium. Hmm. That's interesting. I had no idea. I'm going to have to dive into that. So 
yeah, just something to something to cons uh, something to consider. Yeah. So I think yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for the time. This has been a no great problem. conversation. I've really enjoyed it. We'll we'll want to schedule a recap down the road once the Series A goes through. I want to hear what's going there. But for the last uh, for for the audience, what is next for Empower, and where can they go to follow along with your progress, or if they want to invest, reach out there. Awesome. Yeah. So look, I think what's next is to deliver in at least phase one of that large development I spoke about in Mozambique, so the 25,000 homes, we've broken those up into hundreds, thousands, et cetera. So really getting the first phase out, um, which we hope to still do this year, and to at least launch a pilot project elsewhere in the continent. Nigeria or Uganda are looking quite likely, but you know, it just depends on a few key discussions. It's important for us that we're diversified both from a partner, country, currency perspective, just to start to de-risk. So that will be a big focus between now and the end of the year. If you want to stay up to date, obviously our website's empower.io and you should be able to get links through to if Telegram's your choice, we post there. Twitter's obviously also, or X that is another good place to follow us. Discord as well, those are kind of our three big platforms. And then if you're more into, say, the institutional space or corporate space, uh, we tailor our content a little bit on LinkedIn for that audience. So if you're into the crypto side of it, Discord, Telegram, Twitter, I suppose, as usual. If you're saying, mm, I want to understand a bit more on the institutional level, that side of things, LinkedIn's probably a good place to follow us. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. And we'll talk soon. That's it for today. Do you want to learn more about investment opportunities in Africa? Go to nextfrontierpod.com for more episodes, new insights, and the latest trends in the African startup world.